The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard and I'm joined by my colleague, Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Fernando Yetta, uh, who is affiliated with the Center for the Study of Los Angeles uh, at uh, Loyola Marymount. And we asked around and said, who knows LA politics? And uh, your name came up first on the list. So here we are. Uh, Fernando, thank you very much for joining us. Ah, thanks for having me. Always love to talk about LA politics. <laughs> well, there's a lot to talk about now. Clearly, uh, of course, the mayoral race, the top two primaries until June 7th. And the election is until November, over a year away, November 2022. But things are already starting to shape up and the forces are seem to be sort of coalescing here. What's your take on how that rate, given that this is early days, what's your take on how that race is, is uh, getting going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think we're in the phase where people have to um, file and declare the candidacy so they can start fundraising and start getting endorsements and things of that nature. This is a phase that many campaigns and people who cover campaigns are used to. Uh, they're not, there's not going to be much big news. Uh, the campaigns will try to make big news by, you know, so-and-so endorsed me or this organization endorsed me uh, or I'm proposing this new initiative or this law that they're going to try to write during the campaign. I think we're all familiar with that. And so it's really pretty clear that this is the field. Uh, there are a couple of others that are out there thinking about it. I doubt very much that they're going to join. Uh, and obviously, the longer it takes them, uh, the more difficult it becomes in terms of fundraising, endorsements, putting together an organization and getting your name out there. So, you know, the, the quiet phase uh, and uh, certainly uh, a lot of people waited for the recall to be over. Um, uh, one or two had announced way before. Nobody announced really for three or four months before the recall. But immediately after the recall, you had three of the what I consider the five uh, major viable candidates uh, announced, which made sense to me. You know, I was looking at the endorsements for um, Karen Bass. Mm -hmm. And she has a flock of, not, not surprisingly, she's got a flock of... Um, members of Congress, Democratic members of Congress, uh, I think four city council members. She's got a couple board of supervisors mem members, right. uh, Holly Mitchell and Sheila Kuehl. She's got a lot of folks lined up, but I did not see a significant labor endorsement. And I look at LA from our perch in Sacramento and I see labor as a major player in LA politics. I didn't see that for her. Do you have any are they sending a signal or is, am I overlooking something here? Oh, no. I mean, I think it's very similar to what happened uh, in 2013, which was the last truly open mayoral candidate when Eric Garcetti got elected. And you saw labor split amongst the uh, the top candidates, including Eric Garcetti and Wendy Gruel. And this is the same thing you're going to see. I mean, you have no Republicans running. This is like... The, the ideological spectrum for the mayoral race so far is from a uh, moderate Democrat, liberal Democrat, progressive Democrat. That's what we're talking about. No Republicans need apply. Yeah. Um, there is discussions about Rick Caruso, uh, you know, a very famous developer who at one time was a registered Demo excuse me, de registered Republicans, probably an independent right now that he's been thinking about it. I highly doubt that he's going to run. This is not 1993 when Richard Reardon as 
a Republican got elected. Uh, this is a very different Los Angeles, much more progressive. Um, and I don't care how much money he would spend, less than 10% of registered voters in the city of Los Angeles are registered Republican. Uh, it's just this environment is not conducive to someone like him, even if he were to spend $10 million or so. Uh, and given that, that you do the analysis that he would probably lose, uh, given how big his ego is, I doubt that he would run and lose and be publicly humiliated. He, he just not, not the kind of guy. The other candidate that people talk about that hasn't um, uh, uh, announced what he's going to do is Austin Butner. Uh, Austin Butner yeah. was very serious about running in 2013. He actually put together a campaign organization and then ended up dropping out when he saw that he wasn't resonating. Uh, and, you know, this is a, a, a an old white guy investment. And, oh, no, no offense to the two of you. And we don't he, call ourselves old white guys. We're, we're distinguished and mature. That's OK. okay. All uh, right. Okay. But not, they're not mutually exclusive. Mature. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, why would Austin Butner uh, back out in 2013, but think he has a chance in, you know, 2022? And I think the big difference is that he has a great respect given the job that he did as superintendent of LA Unified. Um, during the pandemic, uh, he was on the phone and on television every Sunday night speaking to the parents of over 500,000 school children and letting them know what was going on. He did it with a very soft voice, very deliberate. He got a lot of kudos. A lot of people really thought he did extremely well. He also you know, delivered millions of meals during that time. So he's got a lot of positives that he didn't have back in 2013. Um, um, but he, what, what's the path? Um, I think he would come in much stronger this time around than 2013, but it's still too crowded of a field. So I don't think he does it. Those are the only two names other than what I consider the big five that are um, out there today. And we can go through the five of them and what their paths are and, and what's going on uh, as you wish. This is also a period for redistricting. Hmm. Does, that, does that play into the LA uh, mayoral race? I know it doesn't in individual districts, I, I suppose, on the council and the board of suits, but in this race, would it, does it have any impact on? Uh, no, not really. I mean, the ones that are involved are obviously the, the two incumbent council members who have declared and have to vote on redistricting. Uh, yeah. But interestingly enough, mo both of their seats are not uh, um, don't don't lend themselves to well. One of the seats definitely does not lend itself to a lot of redistricting, and that is uh, Joe Buscayano, who's currently the council member in the 15th district, which is down in the harbor, the Wilmington area. That follows that what we call that shoestring up into the like the Watts South Central LA. And given how it's the the city map, you can't draw that district any different. I mean, you do have to go to the northern part and figure out like. 120th of it uh, should it be on the you know left side of the freeway or the right side of the freeway and that's basically it so every council member who's ever represented that district the redistricting doesn't matter to them it's just almost it's irrelevant the district is the way it's going to be uh and then uh the other one is uh kevin de leon who's in the 14th district former president pro tem of the california senate 
and he, um, you know, there's some controversy around because he represents downtown. Should one council member represent all of downtown? Should downtown be split up amongst different uh, uh, council members, different districts? That That's the debate. Uh, the commission, the current commission, there is a independent commission that's frankly not that independent because it still needs the vote of the city council. It's not that it's not like the California commission drawing congressional or state legislative lines. What they say goes this commission uh, set up to redraw the lines for the city of Los Angeles still has to get those lines approved by the city council. And so that 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 uh, uh, plays a role. So redistricting, it's back there. I just don't see it, see it resonating in the mayoral election. Okay. What do you think are going to be the main issues driving this election? I mean, I, up here, we hear a lot about homelessness. Yeah. But from your perspective, what are the biggest issues? Yeah. I mean, homelessness is going to be issue number one, two and three. I mean, there are plenty of other issues. Some of the candidates are going to try to force the narrative or the, the, the discussion into other issues. But homelessness is the issue right now being picked up in terms of public opinion, in terms of the narrative, in terms of the water cooler discussion. You talk to just about any Angelino and they bring up homelessness because it's so visible. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a city of four million. And one can say we have a, at the latest, latest census something like 60,000 a homeless, and you say, wait, 60,000 out of 4 million, that's not even, you know, 1%, but yet they're very incredibly visible because they're unhoused out in the public, especially in public spaces, and they're seen. And so while, you know, nine out of 10 of us do not live next to or are even within, uh, you know, two, 300 yards or even a mile from any type of homelessness, it, it, it's all on the main thoroughfares. So you see it, it's present and it's truly a quality of life impacting the parks, the beaches, the uh, just about every recreational spot that you can think of uh, around public buildings, such as libraries, et cetera. And so it's ever present and it is the number one issue. Now, I think there are other issues that are as important and some even more important, but I think for the voters and the residents, it's going to be homelessness. How did um, Mark Ridley Thomas's problems in court, uh, how has that affected the race at all? Do you have any, obviously he's withdrawn from the race. He was a Bass supporter and he's been around there forever. He was up here in the legislature uh, also, as was his son. Uh, does that have any impact? Are there, are there lots of people who wanted to vote for Mark Ridley Thomas and unhappy that they can't do that now or no? No, I mean, I think, uh, number one, he was considered, I mean, when people talked about who were going to be the candidates for mayor, his name was uh, ever present, much more than Karen Bass. Um, it was uh, it was talking about how he was going to run. He was going to be the candidate from, you know, the African-American candidate, the candidate from uh, the South Central L L.A. area. Uh, and then, of course, there was supposedly this famous uh, lunch or meeting with Karen Bass and uh, Mark Willie Thomas, where they where she uh, communicated to him that she was interested and that he, he backed out, et cetera. Um, and, you know, that, that's whether that actually happened that way. It, only Karen Bass and Mark Willie Thomas know. But it's clear now why he backed out. He obviously had an inkling of this was going to happen. And yeah. um, and so th did it, it structured the 
mayoral debate very importantly in that it created a path for Karen Bass. So I, I think in terms of Mark Willie Thomas uh, and Karen Bass could not have run at the same time. So they, the, the, his problems, I, I think clearly um, created a path for Karen Bass to be the candidate from that geographic region, region representing African-Americans, representing progressives. And, and it, it, that was the impact I think that this uh, indictment has had. Um, the second impact I think impacts in all of LA politics and the mayoral race, et cetera. And that's this uh, continuing lack of trust that comes about because of not only Mark Ridley Thomas, but uh, Jose Wizar, who's no longer on the council, but is going through court. And, you know, you will hear news about his issues uh, throughout the mayoral race. And then Mitch Englander, who also a council member, who's actually uh, serving jail time. And so you got three council members in recent memories who have been, you know, uh, either convicted in the process of being convicted and in the process of being indicted uh, for corruption. That's not good for the political system. And the council members and the mayoral candidates are going to be asked about it. That's actually also happened with uh, USC. Here's an mm -hmm. institution, iconic institution of Los Angeles, and they had the scandals a while back uh, in, with their medical scandals. And now they have the uh, tuition, providing tuition, allegedly providing a, a tuition-free scholarship and even a master's degree program and a professorship. Yeah. To, um, to really Thomas's son, it just it seems like there's a atmosphere down there that needs to be cleared. It hasn't been cleared yet. I don't know if it angers the voters enough to uh, throw the rascals out or not, but it's certainly down there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that trust in public institutions is just declining, not only at the national level from the politics that we see, uh, but also at the local level and not only political institutions, but social institutions like the university university or the, the Catholic church or the Boy Scouts. Um, and then, you know, it, it, and then of course, politics and government. And so it is problematic that uh, a democracy requires the belief and the trust that people are doing the right thing. And uh, it's being undermined by these um, uh, allegations and, and some of it because it's, it is true. You know, speaking of USC, uh, you are at Loyola. Mm -hmm. And can you Talk to us a little bit about your background, how you got involved in politics and, and how you got interested in all this. Sure. I'm actually an, a USC alum. I uh, got my BA there and then went to the University of Michigan for my PhD. I actually wrote a dissertation on Los Angeles politics, the incorporation of previously excluded groups. I tracked how African-Americans, Latinos, Asians, women and Jews were first excluded and then how they were included and specifically in terms of holding public office. And I did simply put together a graph that uh, on the one hand said, these are the top 100 elected offices in Los Angeles County, um, using the county as a whole in terms of a, an organic whole. And in those 100 offices were the 
congressional delegation, the state legislative delegation, the county board of supervisors, the city council, et cetera. And we measured the, and taking a step back, there are over 2000 elected offices in Los Angeles County alone. But as we all know, some of them are, you know, aren't even worth anything, but then you got mayor or supervisor or member of Congress. And so I used three variables to distinguish and rank order these. And they were the constituent size, size of the budget, and then prestige of the position position itself. And then the prestige of the position was determined by the career paths of elected officials themselves, meaning what positions would they give up and then move up on. And, and so that, you know, you had a school board member would give up his position to run for city council. A council member would give up their position to run for supervisor. A council member would give their position up to run for mayor, an assembly member to run for state senate, a state senator to run for uh, Congress. And then we're able to rank these 100, distinguish them from the other 1900, but then within the 100, actually rank them from number one through 100 and tracking and having data for over 50 years of every single elected official who held these 100. There's an iron rule that nobody, absolutely nobody ever gave up a position in the lower ranks, excuse me, in the upper ranks to run for the lower ranks. And we all know that in Intuitively, you don't give up power voluntarily. So no one ever gives up a congressional seat to run for the state assembly. Nobody ever gives up a county board of supervisor seat to run for city council. Uh, we all know that, but I had the data that shows that to be the case, not one single example. Now, there are times when you're kicked out of this pyramid of power through term limits or defeat or whatever, but then you can come back in there and you might come back at a lower level. I get that, but you've been kicked out. You're not giving up power. So clearly establish what are the top 100 elected offices in Los Angeles County, and then simply ask the question, out of those 100, how many are held by Latinos, Blacks, Jews, Asians, or women, those five groups, and start in 1960? And in 1960, there was one Black, one Latino, no Asians, one Jew, and one woman. The woman happened to be a Jew. So that means the other 97 were held by white males and then track that for the next 40 to 50 years and then see when people when certain groups were incorporated and why. So, number one, I documented the incorporation of Latino, Blacks, Asians, women and Jews. Number two, I explained how it happened. And then number three, take a look at the consequences of that. You know, we've seen that in Sacramento over the last few years. You never used to see. Um, someone going from the legislature, the assembly or the Senate and going down to a city council right. or to a uh, board of supervisor seat. But over the years in this race too, we have two former legislative leaders in this race for mayor, right. but Herb Weston has gone down there. Karen Bass used to be speaker of the assembly de Leon was the pro tem in the Senate. Right. Uh, they, the, the power really is, I think more in the board of supervisors, for example, oh, yeah. individual, you know, yeah. uh, a lot yeah. more clout and I think a lot more and, and more money too. I believe that, uh, that, uh, really, really Thomas, I think his salary is 224,000 a year. That's correct. Yeah. And that's more than they make up in Sacramento, even though yeah. one might think they have wider power. Just, it's just an interesting dynamic. I think. Yeah. Just a couple of comments on that. I, I think, uh, it still holds all these individuals that we've seen. You mentioned Herb Wesson or Kevin DeLeon or, you know, um, they, they all came down after they were term limited. You didn't see a single one 
uh, move because they gave up their position. So Daryl Steinberg doesn't become mayor of Sacramento because he didn't want to be president pro tem anymore. Willie Brown doesn't become mayor of San Francisco because he didn't want to be speaker anymore. They were kicked out because of term limits. Then they all end up wanting to stay in politics, you know, Peralta running for mayor of Oakland, not winning or whatever. And so it still holds that you don't give up power. Power is taken away from you and you can't help it. And you want to be back into that position of power. And so you're willing to run for a mayoralty, county board of supervisor or et cetera. So there's a ton of former legislators who are mayors, board of supervisors, even city council members. Uh, um, um, you know, uh, Cameron Smythe is a council member at a small city in Santa Clarita. Uh, Luis Alejo is a county supervisor in Monterey County. I mean, we have a ton of examples. But let me tell you, none of these guys would have done that in the old days when there wasn't any term limits. Uh-huh. And so that, that so that that kind of still holds. And then number two comment about the Board of Supervisors in my pyramid of power, uh, you the, the number one most significant elected office in L.A. County is mayor of L.A., even though it only geographically covers 40 percent of the region. Um, but number two through six are the county Board of Supervisors in the county Board of Supervisors right now. We have a obviously former uh, former state senators, but we also have, you know, former member of Congress, a former member of the president's cabinet, um, you know, uh, two, you know, two former uh, members of Congress. And so people literally gave up a congressional position to go to county supervisor. Nowhere else in America does that happen. Only in Los Angeles County. Right. And you also have now Karen Bass willing to give up a congressional seat to become mayor. Nowhere else does that happen with the exception of Chicago, New York and Los Angeles. Typically, the mayor of Cincinnati or St. Louis or whatever is trying to go to Congress, not the other way around. It just shows you the tremendous power that these local elected offices have here in California, specifically in Los Angeles County. How do you think the, uh, the top two primary is going to play out? here the top two vote getters on june 7th and they go meet each other running actually i'm going to technically correct you uh the mayoral race will not be a top two uh-huh. uh, it is uh um uh, while it's being held in the june primary it doesn't follow the same rules that the state does um oh, it okay. is possible that a candidate on in june on june 7th can receive 50 percent plus one and they would automatically be elected mayor of los angeles in june Right. And only if nobody gets 50 percent do the top two then go to the runoff in November. Distinctly different uh, than than the um, than state legislatures, the top two system that we're used to at the uh, uh, for constitutional offices or the state legislature. But practically, it'll be the practical thing because we don't expect anybody to get 50 percent. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Why was the election calendar stretched and elongated. What happened? It seems like it's taking forever to do this. And I guess it was deliberately done. It was an order. Okay. So I'm going to have to um, uh, uh, clearly uh, um, say that I was the president of the Electoral Reform Commission appointed by Herb Wesson and Eric Garcetti to take a look at what reforms the city of LA should consider uh-huh. And um, we put on the ballot to move the election from odd year to even year. Uh-huh. 
that meant there was one uh, one term that many would then have for five and a half years to align the positions uh, uh, accordingly. And so Eric Garcetti got elected for a four-year term in 2013, but in 2017, he got elected for five and a half years because the, okay. uh, we were shifting over. We had the option, of course, of going the other way and making that term only three and a half years, but that wasn't going to fly with a lot of the electeds. Um, the, now, the number one thing is, in 2013, when Eric Garcetti became mayor, the turnout was 23% right, in the city. This was in an election where there was no incumbent, where you had, in my mind, a tremendous group of candidates that were geographically, ethnically, ideologically diverse and should have appealed to the everybody in the city one way or another. And we only got 23 percent. And people say, oh, man, that's terrible. But I would say, yeah, that's actually was a little bit above average for city elections and off year. That same year, the city of Long Beach had an election for mayor. Again, no incumbent, a very diverse field. Robert Garcia ended up getting elected, uh, and they had less than 23% turnout. That same year, the city of Pasadena, a community typically seen as having high civic engagement, they had a mayoral election, no incumbent, incredibly diverse field. They had less than 19% of the voters. Were these and all so, odd-numbered years? These were all odd-numbered years in 2013. Uh-huh. In 2013, those three cities, odd-numbered year. And so this is will be the first election in L.A. history where the mayor will be elected in an even-numbered year in an election concurrent with a governor. Uh-huh. Given the changes that have happened with, you know, um, uh, universal mail, mail by, uh, vote, vote by mail ballots, et cetera, we expect the turnout to be, you know, 55 at the low end and probably 60 percent. That means the turnout for this mayor's race is going to be three times what it's been in the last 20 to 30 years. Wow. And so this is a completely different electorate, a completely different mayoral election. And so some of my colleagues or analysts who start talking about it, they keep analyzing it as though it's the same type of election completely different. All right. Um, and this is very different uh, uh, dynamics. Fernando Guerra, thank you so much for joining us. That was great. We could talk for hours. Tim, did you have anything you wanted to add or any other question? Well, I was going to say our uh, we're ready to move on to our regular segment, who had oh, yeah. the worst week in California politics. And would you like to join us or would you like to uh, step away and let John and I examine? Well, the I'll join you, but I'm going to be very biased, obviously, toward uh, L.A. And I already have several people who I could think of. Oh, well, well let's hear it. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Well, obviously, Mark Ridley Thomas. Uh, yeah. Number one, he had a he's, pretty. He's been our winner for the past. He's been our recent winner. Yeah. Okay, so uh, yeah. that, that's very un- unfortunate for him. So, um, but yeah, uh, very very uh, uh, tough week for him, given given when er- everything that's been happening. Yeah, totally agree. And then we who else? Uh, you said you had another uh, another candidate uh, that also didn't have a good week. So I, I think that um, the uh, both. Uh, uh, Raman, who is a councilwoman in, uh, um, in in the city of Los Angeles, and Park Rikorian, uh both of them, uh, in terms of the redistricting process, the maps 
that are being let out completely move them from uh, their their uh, their area. Where, I mean, I'm talking about uh, um, Nithya Raman's seat gets moved from the the center core of the city all the way out to the valley, and so uh, not not a good week for them. Interesting. Um, well, we thought uh, we were going to talk about Richard Lewis Brown, whose problems have been percolating over the last weeks and months, but they pretty much came to a head in uh, Sacramento at a meeting, an SEIU meeting uh, over the weekend. Jim? Uh, yeah. So last Sunday, he was, the, the board voted to strip him of his powers. Now, there is some question on the legality of this, or at least I should say that uh, Richard Lewis Brown is questioning the legality of this. And from the B story that I read, it does seem uncertain what happens now. Uh, this is a little bit of a standoff, but uh, all things considered, this is not good for Mr. Brown, who has had a contentious relationship with the board, I, I think, from before his time that he was even elected, and certainly from the moment he was elected. Uh, so I, I don't think this is the end of the story, but it's certainly not a not a good not a good week for uh, Richard Lewis Brown. As I understand it, he gets to stay uh, on the board. He has a position on the board, but his role as a president does not exist now. In terms of setting the agenda and having other procedural positions, you know, he, he's not able to do that now. Someone else will be doing that a person appointed by the board. So it, it seems like he's been pretty much put in the shade after all this debate that has gone on legal issues. And there's side issues too about him that have sort of percolated up. Uh, clearly he did not have a good week. But I like, I also like your, uh, your redistricting idea. That is good. We should we call him. We should make our uh, phone call to Paul Mitchell here and have yeah. him weigh on this. <laughs> how bad this, this actually is. So well, thank you so much for joining yeah. us. This is really uh, interesting. Yeah, thanks great. for having me. Take care, guys. Appreciate great. it. Thank you. thank you very much. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.